G'day, this is Dan Quintana, and this is the Physiology and Behavior Show. And in this episode, I am sharing the audio from a talk I did on open access at the Norwegian PhD School of Pharmacy, where I share the benefits of open access, namely that it's better for society, it's better for your research career, and that it's better for science. I also share some practical tips on how to get started with open access research. Hope you enjoy it. Okay. Uh, thank you for the uh, for the very uh, for the very kind uh, introduction. Um, it's it's a pleasure to be speaking here at the Norwegian PhD School of, uh, of Pharmacy. Uh, I think such things like this are a fantastic uh, initiative uh, to for, for the support of uh, PhD students as well. Uh, so for the next few moments, I'm going to be talking about open access and uh, and open science. But to give you uh, just a bit of context about uh, what I do for my for my research, um, I am looking at the role of the neuropeptide oxytocin in behavior and cognition. Not going to be talking about this today, um, but just to sort of see there's a little bit of crossover between the work that I do in more sort of applied neuropsychopharmacology and, and pharmacy as well. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the role of oxytocin, which, which currently within Norway is, is indicated to assist with birth, um, but also intra, uh, intranasally to assist with breastfeeding as well. Um, but there's a lot of potential, there's a lot of potential when it comes to how we can actually um, address um, psychiatric disorders, which are characterized by social dysfunction, such as autism and, and schizophrenia. So um, that's just a bit of my research. Um, so looking at some gene expression stuff, but also doing and, and running some clinical trials on how intranasal oxytocin can actually improve um, social cognition in, in autism as well. But uh, enough on, on oxytocin. Today, I'm going to be talking about uh, open access. And open science is, is quite a broad church. There's a lot of stuff that's actually involved with, with open access. And this is a bit of an open access ta- taxonomy. Um, but today in particular, I'm going to be talking about um, uh, open access within sort of the, the, the broad umbrella of open science, um, open data, and also open reproducible uh, research. Um, all right, so I'm going to be covering three things or three benefits of, uh, of, op- of open access. Um, the first one is that open access is, is better for society. Now, at the moment, most people can't access the research that we're publishing. Um, at the moment now, um, I think about 60 to 70% of research that we're currently um, producing is behind paywalls. So the public can't access it. And I, I think, you know, being in, at most Norwegian institutions have fantastic access to journals. So I think when you're inside an institution, you don't actually understand how difficult it can be to access research if you're a layperson, um, but also if you're at a university in other parts of the world where the access to journals is actually quite limited. And by doing that, you're actually ripping yourself off because you're not allowing your research to be read by other people. Um, but we'll get back to that. Um, now, open access, it's actually a human right um, and it's enshrined within human rights here that you should have access to, um, to enjoy the arts and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. So that's a pretty good reason in itself. Um, but a lot of people, particularly a lot of scientific publishers say, well, you know, this is, this is all fine, but, um, but the public doesn't understand the research. So there's, so there's actually no need to put our to put our research out there, but I think I, I don't I don't agree with that. And you know, who are we to actually decide who deserves to read the research? I think we don't, we don't give the public enough credit, and the public are extremely interested in the type of research that we're doing. Uh, a great example was the discovery or the first picture of a black hole. Not only was this this the sort of news that a lot of lay people were interested in, but also the stories behind the science as well. This is this is Katie Bowman when she actually first discovered or first rendered this image there. The public is very interested. So, 
It's not up to us to decide who cannot, who can't and can read our research. Our research needs to be out there by default. We also need to break down the stereotypes of who we are as scientists. Google autocomplete is extremely revealing as to what people actually think. And here's a good example of what people think about scientists that were, that were out of touch, um, that, you know, what are, what are scientists really up to? And that idea of what scientists are really up to really speaks to this idea of our research is being held behind closed doors so the public or the interested public doesn't actually know uh, what we're doing. But I think more importantly, when we lose public support, when people aren't actually interested in, in funding research, um, then we lost this interest because the, the, the public is essentially paying for our research via the taxpayer. And if the taxpayer doesn't care about research, we're less likely to have the funding to actually continue the work that we're doing. So, open access is better for society. Um, but I think um, the, the, the next thing is, which is more interest for a lot of people, is that it's better for your research career. Now, just a, a quick show of hands. Who, who's familiar with preprints? So, about, about a third of the audience is familiar with preprints. Okay, so I'll, I'll briefly go through what a preprint is. So, it's basically a complete scientific manuscript, the same sort of manuscript that you would submit to a journal, which is submitted to a public server. Uh, one of the more pu popular public servers would, would be BioArchive, for instance. Um, Open Science Framework is also another popular public server. So, it is the same manuscript that you would submit to the journal. Um, basically, a lot of people would just uh, save their Word file as a PDF or they would render their PDF um, a, a, into a LaTeX file or what have you. But it is the same sort of file that you would submit. Uh, and that is what a preprint is before you actually submit it to a journal. Um, uh, and these, this, this can be accessed by anyone, by scientists, by the public, whatever. What actually makes it a preprint is the fact that anyone can access it within these public servers. Um, okay, so I just want to give you a, a bit of a story behind a paper that I published. Uh, it came out uh, early last year, and this was a paper. It was on statistics. It was actually quite interesting and perhaps relevant to people here about finding uh, finding ways of actually finding support for a null model or a null hypothesis. Um, but doesn't matter what the paper is about. Basically, what happened here was that um, I did uh, maybe about two three years ago a presentation much like this on this idea of how can we actually find evidence for, for a null hypothesis. And I thought, well, I've, I've gone to the trouble of making a presentation. I may as well post this online. And I did that on Open Science Framework, which I'm going to go into. And this presentation as well is on Open Science Framework and the link will be at the end. But I thought, why let this presentation go to waste? It was only about 20 or 30 people um, and I posted an Open Science Framework and then put the link on Twitter. And people got very, very interested in what I was doing. I'm like, this is great. This is this is some good feedback here. So, I thought, okay, let's post this as a preprint. I want to get some feedback. I want to put this actual idea together, this tutorial, this demonstration together, and let's put this out as, as a preprint before submission to a journal. Uh, so, so, I did that, but I got some feedback, some of it positive and some of it negative. And this is really interesting because it actually allowed me before submission to the journal to improve and work on, on my paper before I was doing it. Um, and this is quite interesting because um, some, of the, some, some of my colleagues were like, oh, are you a little bit embarrassed about some of the negative feedback you got? And sure, I'm human. And, and it, it was, to, to an extent, a little bit embarrassing. But to be honest, I would much rather have critical remarks said to me at the preprint stage than at the stage where it's already published. No one wants a retraction on your CV if you've said something which is incorrect. 
And if I publish this paper, then there's every chance that this could have gone through with some big errors. So, the fact that I actually had this as a preprint allowed me to fix my errors much earlier. But on top of that, um, the author that I originally did the paper with, he went across to industry, which is fine, but he didn't have the time to actually continue working on the paper. But one of the people that actually saw the paper preprint online was like, hey, this is really interesting. And he had a lot of expertise and I invited him to come on board as a paper. So, I found a new author that way. And then eventually, it got to publication. Um, and um, this, this whole process was fantastic and was only facilitated firstly by the fact that it was a preprint, but also secondly, sharing it via social media. Now, I understand tomorrow there's a seminar on social media, so I will encourage you to go to that because I think social media is such an important skill as, as researchers to, to, to master. Um, we, we need to be sharing our research. And it's not about self-promotion. It's about promoting your research. So, it's a really important tool and it's worth putting your time into. Okay, so talking about the academic advantage, um, there was a study that came out which l- looked at a summary. Uh, it, was, it was basically a, a meta-analysis of sorts, looking at the advantage that you get from posting open access papers versus equivalent papers which are not open access. And in almost every single field, the relative citation rate was much higher in the open access papers. So, I, th- I think, you know, th- there's a whole question about impact factors and that they're not a great measure of how good your paper is. But what a better measure is, is your citations. And if you can actually do anything to actually increase your future citations, primarily by actually by publishing your research open access, then I think that's a good thing. Okay, let's talk a bit about Facebook. Now, this was the very first login page of Facebook. Um, but Facebook has been obviously iterated thousands of times to what it looks like now to what we have here. Um, But the reason that Facebook was actually so popular and able to iterate very quickly was the way that they get feedback. Now, looking at Facebook, if they have an idea, they're like, all right, we need to increase engagement. Their whole business goal is to make you to look at your phone for longer. And someone might have an idea to be able to improve that. Uh, So, in order to test that, they might sort of do an A-B test um, or they might do a specific population. Sometimes they test the entire population of New Zealand, for instance. And they see, does this new feature actually make people look at their phones a lot more? Um, and then they analyze the data. They might make some tweaks. Uh, and if it's not working, they might pivot to something else. And in the future, they analyze again. And if it's working well, then they'll deploy it to all their listeners, uh, to, to all their users. So you can see that the feedback process is actually much quicker. Um, now let's, let, let, let's look at academia, how the typical paper is, um, uh, the feedback structure for a typical paper. Now, this is ex- an extremely optimistic timeline. You get an idea for a paper, assuming you already have the data. Uh, you write and submit the paper to the journal. You know, it might take you, say, three months. Um, then, if, if you're lucky, you'll get a revision offered. Um, but if not, then you'll get your paper rejected and you have to start all over again. Okay, let's say you actually got a revision offered um, and then you get, you get your paper accepted. And then it comes online and depending on your journal, maybe it'll come out a few days later. Sometimes it takes months. You don't know. Now, everyone can read it as long as they have journal access. And a lot, of, a lot of times people won't. And then about one and a half to two years later, then you'll start to get an idea about the feedback of your paper. Uh, citations typically peak around two years after publication. So, then you can actually figure out, okay, this was an important paper. A lot of people are citing it or oh, this maybe wasn't the best idea. It's got, it's got no citations or only one citation. So, in other words, we have this traditional publication process where you have the scientist submitting a paper, goes to a journal, it goes via the, the, the bottleneck of an editor, then to peer reviewers, 
and then to the community. But with a preprint model, you can actually do these two things in parallel. Just before submission to a paper, then you can, you can submit your paper to a preprint server and the community, be it scientists or the public, can access your paper straight away. All the while this, this research process is going on. And the other thing I want to emphasize as well is that you can actually update your preprint. So say you submitted a preprint and you got some good feedback on a paper, but it got rejected. Before you submit it again to your next journal, you can just do version two of your preprint. All the major preprint servers allow very easy versioning. So it's very easy to do that. And people can go back and actually see how the paper has evolved over time. Now, this is a, a PhD uh, meeting. So there's a lot of PhDs here. And I'm sure a lot of you are looking for postdocs soon. But I, I just want to highlight a typical problem um, that a lot of people um, who are assessing applications come across. The fact that a lot of people on their CVs are saying, oh, this paper's been submitted or this paper is um, uh, I'm, I'm currently writing up. But reviewers can't actually assess how good your paper is. But if you use preprints, then people can actually assess, okay, this is what these papers are about. So, just here's another benefit of actually doing, uh, doing preprints there. Okay, so when it comes to sort of traditional versus open research processes, even when it comes to public dissemination, traditionally, you would work with your press office. Now, your press offices, press offices are doing fantastic work um, and they have access to, um, to, to a lot of channels where they can distribute their research. But with the emerging way, you can actually inform the public by yourself both by sharing your preprint, but also sharing lay summaries via, via Twitter, via Instagram, via YouTube, however you want. This is the emerging way. When it comes to networking, typically you need to attend conferences and visit labs. These things are expensive. That's why the PhD School of Pharmacy has to have grants in order to do this, because these things are expensive. But the emerging way is you can actually meet people and post your preprint links on social networks. Previously, if you didn't have any money, you're not able to network. But now, for next to no money, you can actually network and do these things via social media and share your research that way. And of course, like I've been saying, when it comes to publication, you have to wait years to see the impact of your work. But with social media and preprints, you can see the impact of your work almost instantly. Okay, so it's better for society. Open access is better for your research career. But open access is also better for science. Now, I remember learning about the scientific method at school. I thought this is fantastic. We'd get, the, we'd get the microscopes out, the Bunsen burners out, and we'd learn this is how we do science. You specify your hypotheses, you design your study, you collect your data, you analyze your data, you interpret it, and then you publish your experiment. So this is how science is taught in textbooks. This is how we, we, we learn science in undergraduate. But then the wheels have somehow fallen off when it comes to how we actually do public science. Whether you like to think so or not, we are in the midst of a reproducibility crisis. A lot of findings in the literature within medicine, um, within cancer research, within psychology, fail to reproduce. And there's been a, num a number of factors which actually contribute to irreproducible research, but a lot of them uh, are directly attributable to a lack of openness. When we go back to the cycle here, we can see there's a, la a lack of replication, a reason we're doing this is a lack of, or reason a lot of these things do not replicate is a lack of power, statistical power, but that, that's for another presentation. P-hacking, which is for another presentation, but also publication bias and the lack of data sharing. If we can actually increase our access to data and to papers, this can go a long way of actually reducing uh, this reproducibility crisis that, that we're currently in. Okay, I want to go and over some common objections to open access research. Probably the most common one is, well, 
if my work is out there and not published, I'm going to get scooped. Someone's going to take my idea and then publish it themselves. Um, now, in reality, um, time and time again, people have asked, okay, this on paper, maybe this is a threat, but has this actually happened to anyone? And of the hundreds of thousands of preprints that have come out, there's only been one time this has happened. But the thing is, this has been completely transparent. Everyone knows who did this. Everyone can see this was the original paper. Everyone can see this was the paper's idea that was stolen. And that researcher forever is known as the person who stole that single preprint. In reality, this never happens. And we have to remember in the, the field of physics have been doing preprints for about a decade. They're way ahead of us. And they've gone through all these problems and they've actually seen that, no, this isn't actually an issue. No one's getting scooped because it's public. By doing preprints, you actually provide scoop protection against your work. If you think you have a fantastic idea, but you're worried this is going to take about two to three years to get accepted in publication, preprint your paper. Then it's going to be out there and people are going to know this person, this researcher has, has this idea first. The next one is, I don't know how to do it. This is hard. But the thing is, as scientists, we have to learn new tools all the time. This is the new reality that we're going to be entering in, particularly with Plan S, which I'll talk about soon. You're just going to have to learn because this is what we're going to have to do. The next one is I can't afford it. And this, this is legit. Some open access journals are really expensive. Nature Communications is about 5,000 US to submit your paper there. Some are very, very expensive. But there are ways that you can actually self-archive your papers for free and still have your, your papers open for free, which I'll go into. Uh, many journals out there are, are free, believe it or not, um, or extremely low cost. On the other end of the spectrum, um, in order for, a, a, I had a conversation with, with one of the editors who actually runs one of these open access journals, uh, PJ, and, and he was telling me that, like, when you actually put everything together, there is no reason why any organization should be charging more than a thousand US for a paper if you want to be actually getting all the typesetting, all the reviewing, and all that kind of stuff. If you're paying more than a thousand, it's, you're getting ripped off. Uh, second one is, well, this is bad for my career, doing all this open science stuff. Well, no, open science actually boosts your citations. And finally, there's, there's been this idea that, well, you know, because people want to have this scoop protection, people are going to rush out their, their findings. But like I mentioned before, physics has been ahead of the game. And this hasn't come to pass within physics. People aren't rushing out shoddy research just to be there first. This hasn't happened. So, I think the, the important thing we need to realize is that our, our current system, the current publication system, reflects an old system where we used to um, write our cover letters, actually send our papers um, by mail. Anyone here who actually remembers sending their papers via mail? Yeah, we've got, we, have, we have a few. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, I'm not meant to highlight uh, your age. Um, but yeah, and, and that's how it was. And the current system that we have reflects that and the fact that journals were, were printed on paper, which is why we have more or less why we have word limits. Um, but we, things don't have to be this way. And people have been suggesting these improvements to open science um, since the 70s. But the fact is, we haven't had the technology to be able to do it. But now, now we do. There are ways and there are tools that you can do this much easier. Okay, so open access can be free. And um, this is just a quick overview of how you can actually do it. Uh, firstly, you can find a journal, which is free. There's a few out there. Um, um, not as many within medicine, but there's a few within psychology. Um, you can also see whether you can publish the postprint. Now, the postprint is the version of your paper, which is the final accepted version. After you've done all your revisions and the journal says, yes, we accept this. Um, we accept this version of the paper. Um, some journals allow you to do this, but you have to check their policies if they actually allow you to, to, um, to, to, to do it. 
Um, I'd say maybe only about 25% do. Um, the other option is, can you publish the preprint? Now, at least within medicine, the absolute majority of journals allow you to publish the preprint. Um, almost no journals are specifically uh, against this. And if, even if they don't do that, which is extremely rare, maybe think about looking at a different journal. I know there's no way getting around this idea of journal prestige, but there's not just one journal you can publish in. There's always options for journals that you can publish in. Uh, at a glance, you can actually look at journal policies by a website called Sherpa Romeo. Google that and it has a list of the policies of almost every single journal out there. And it'll tell you this journal is okay with posting the postprint, which is the final version, or this journal is okay with posting the preprint. Um, so there are ways you can actually do this. So even if you think, well, I don't have any money um, to, to publish my papers, you can always publish your preprints, almost always publish your preprints, depending on the journal policies. It's extremely rare to have a journal that won't allow postprints. It's much in the same way of um, journals allowing you to, to present your work at conferences. It's the same sort of principle. Okay, one fantastic tool to facilitate this is Open Science Framework. This is a non-for-profit organization in the States. Um, they have an absolute guarantee of funding for, I think it's 50 years. So, if they close down tomorrow, their servers would continue for at least 50 years, which is, uh, which is quite a long time. Um, there's a lot of other places where you can post your papers, for instance, academia.edu and ResearchGate. But these are commercial companies. We don't know where they're going to be. And we know that these companies, all they're looking for is to get bought out by the big publishers. And we have no idea what the big publisher is going to do. So, don't trust your stuff with these non-profit or with these profit for-profit organizations. But when it comes to actually posting your work using something like Open Science Framework, which is going to be around for a long time and isn't in it for the money, is a way to go where you can be posting your preprints and your data. Um, and you can also use it for different means. Um, I use it to post my presentations, but I also use it to post, um, to post, my, um, post my data as well. So, it's a fantastic tool um, to, be, uh, to be posting your work. I think it's also worth recognizing that even, uh, even Big Pharma is getting involved with, uh, with open, access, open, open access publishing and it's increasing as well. All right, a little bit on Plan S. This is uh, an initiative which is going to be implemented within Norway from 2020. Um, they've signed on to it as well as about 20 other organizations within Europe and around the world. Um, and the actual Im implementation details isn't going to come out till, um, till about spring this year. But regardless, the idea of Plan S is to uh, accelerate the transition to, to open access. Um, and we're going to be finding out the details of exactly how this is going to be implemented. Details like, is it going to apply for currently funded research or research that's going to be funded in the future? Um, these things are going to be, um, become uh, re revealed in, in spring as well. Um, but I think one thing which has happened recently is a, a new subscription deal with Elsevier, um, which basically allows researchers to access Elsevier papers um, but also publish their work open access, I think to the tune of 9 million euros. So, it wasn't cheap. Um, and there's no specific details as to how many papers this actually means that is going to be published. But um, And there's a lot of debate as to whether this was a good, good deal or not. But regardless, it is a, a step forward and the, um, the Norwegian consortium um, was able to actually work out a, a deal here. So, uh, keep your eyes out for, for what's happening here. If you are interested to learn more about open science, I would encourage you to check out the Open Science MOOC, um, which goes through all this stuff, uh, preprints, data, the whole thing. It's free um, and you can access all the materials as well. So, that's, that's very, very handy. 
Uh, if you're interested in learning more about preprints, I would recommend a website called ASAP Bio, where it goes through every single question you get about preprints, all the technicalities there. It's, um, it's, it's a really great resource as well. So check that out. And it's also great because you know, a lot of people are very interested in preprints, but their supervisors are very skeptical. So this answers a lot of questions as well. And if your supervisor is skeptical, I would encourage you to, to bring up this idea of open science and open access early on, not, not the day before you're going to submit your paper. Think about it early, okay? Um, so before I finish as well, I, I just uh, if you're interested in research methods, I have a podcast that I co-host called Everything Hurts. We talk about these issues. We spoke to the to the to the, the founder of uh, ASAP Bio, for instance. We spoke in in this podcast. We speak to publishers. We speak to open access publishers, but we also speak to researchers and, and early career researchers as well who have um, who are dealing with these challenges from day to day. So if you're into podcasts and into research methods, I'd highly recommend you would check this out. Everything hurts podcast. So take home messages. Science is rapidly moving towards an open access model, whether you like it or not. This is happening in Norway and this is happening around the world. Uh, so it's important to actually adjust your, 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 your research in that way. Um, the other thing I want to highlight as well is your research doesn't need to be, doesn't need to convert to open research straight away. A lot of people are very hesitant going, well, there's data, there's preprints, there's all this stuff. I'm, I can't do it all, so I'm not going to do it. Doesn't matter. Just get started. It does, you don't need to do everything at once. Just get started. Um, secondly, I think we're going to look back in 20 to 30 years thinking, I can't believe we did science that way. I can't believe science was behind closed doors. I can't believe that we didn't actually post our data so people couldn't verify the work that we're doing. Open science is science done right. And finally, open science is good for society. Uh, it's good for your career, but it is also good for science. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much. This was very interesting. And um, I think you learned quite a lot about how to go open. So, are there any questions? Sorry? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we used to have Beale's list to check for predatory journals, um, but that was closed down. So the best thing I would do is check with your academic librarian. Um, I mean, sometimes there are some tell, tell, tell signs that it's a predatory journal, um, particularly promises of, of, of one-week you know, review. Um, and they're, they're typically, you know, 100 US dollars and stuff. Um, but the best way to actually check whether it's predatory is to speak to your academic librarian because that, that's all they do from, from day to day. Any more? Yep. This is the first question. So uh, an article is one thing. Yep. An article gives you actually a very brief overview of what's been done. Mm. So, so I find it really interesting, like ways of, actually how we can share data yeah. and how we can be open about our experience. And, and so have you any recommendations for that? And especially if you're thinking about sensitive data. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sensitive data is uh, a lot of people here, I'm sure, are working with, with patient data. And we have to also consider those, those sensitivities there. Uh, one thing is actually asking your participants during the design of your study in the consent forms, do you consent for us to have your data, um, of course, removing all as much identifiable stuff as possible. That's one way, but it's tricky for data that you already have in, in the first place. Some people have actually got retrospective approval to do this, but that's a lot of work. Um, 
other ways you can do it is you can actually simulate data sets as well and you can post the data and that, that and you can recreate the analyses and get the same sort of summary results um, as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's definitely something to be thought about during during the design stage. And it's, you know, if you're not, if you don't have publicly uh, data that's sensitive, then of course you should be posting it. But if you do, there's a few extra considerations like, like you mentioned. I think we take the last question. Wow. That, that's a great tip. That, yeah, that's an excellent tip. I, I, I do exactly the same thing with my papers. In, in the cover letter, I say there is already interest in this paper to your readership. It's been downloaded 2,000 times as well. And, that, and that, that's fantastic. Another way of actually helping out your research too. So that, that's a fantastic tip. Okay, thank you very much. Thank this you. was very interesting. So now we learned a lot about how to get uh, open <laughs> with our publishing. So here's a small present for you. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's very nice. Thank you. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Physiology and Behavior. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcast app so you don't miss any future episodes. Bye for now.